Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. Anita Mitchell has over 25 years experience in executive management, sustainability, social impact and corporate assurance, spanning energy, water, waste, property and construction in both the public and private sectors. Today in her role as the Chief Executive of Placemaking New South Wales, Anita leads the teams managing and enhancing some of the state's most treasured places. These include The Rocks, Darling Harbour, Luna Park, Pyramid Waterfront, Ballast Point Park, White Bay and Barangaroo. So Anita, you made, I guess, a bold move uh, at the beginning or, or on leaving school to, to study environmental science. How did your parents feel about that? Well, my parents weren't very happy about it. They'd moved to Sydney to give uh, my brother and I a decent education and uh, according to my mother, I was wasting that opportunity by doing something that she really didn't understand. Um, She thought I was going to tie myself to a tree for a living um, and really didn't understand what an environmental scientist could do and, and would I actually ever earn a living out of it. Did you ever tie yourself to a tree? Uh, I, I hug trees, but no, I've <laughs> never actually tied myself to a tree. Where, where did the, where did the, I guess, the genesis of wanting to study environmental science come from then? Because it was probably relatively new at that point as a field. Yeah, look, I was one of only a handful of people who was doing it. It was the only environmental science course in Sydney at the time. Of course, most universities do them now. Yeah. But um, I guess I, I grew up in the city, but my parents are from the country and my parents' families were all in what we would call sort of agricultural industries that weren't doing so well. So logging um, and old growth forests, funnily enough, is uh, quite controversial, uh, turning it into wood chips and sending it over to Japan. Um, that was the uh, the nexus of environmental activism when I was a teenager. And then my mother's side of the family was also in the fishing industry, uh, tuna production and, and cannery uh, operations in Eden. And then my, dad fa- my dad's family were all dairy farmers. So um, if you think about all of those industries heavily impacted by all sorts of different global things, um, you know, the collapse of uh, fisheries, the moving of uh, production to Thailand because it was cheaper, the deregulation of the dairy industry and the $1 milk, um, really all of those industries were, were dying in Industries and having grown up in Sydney and heard the need for environmental protection, but then having family members in the country in little rural towns that were incredibly dependent on those industries meant that I was very passionate about trying to find a middle ground where you could still protect the environment but also have regional towns that were thriving and, and had industries and jobs. So it's quite a complex issue here because it sounds in one way that you're parents sort of rejected that or, or maybe forced to reject that. And I can't work out if you're rejecting or embracing it. It's, it's a really, yeah, it's complex. So it, it was complex because, you know, if you grow up in the city, then, you know, logging of old growth forests is, is a terrible thing. And, and, you know, you can see, especially studying environmental science, the, the issues associated with um, ecological protection. Um, yet you go to the country and my grandmother um, sort of looked at old growth forests and called it dirty old scrub and why why, why wouldn't you do something with yes. that? So I think it's a, a city versus country mentality of um, I guess knowledge is a good thing and having an understanding of the ecological services 
services that are provided by, you know, the natural areas. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can't put food on the table um, and, quite frankly, you most of the young people left the towns yeah. that my parents grew up in. There were just no jobs and no future. Yeah. Um, and I think that that nexus has always been of, of great interest to me is how do you find solutions to these, you know, mega problems? Yes. So we had an election this year and, and and without getting into the sort of, let's say, the politics of it, it's quite clear that um, those who are seem, seem to be collectively most passionate about the environment are those living in the inner cities. And um, I hadn't thought till you till you sort of suggested this that that's maybe somewhat of a of a paradox. It's a huge paradox, and I think um, if you look at the the Greens and and what they did well, and I, I listened to some of the commentary, is the original criticism um, was that they didn't do enough in Queensland to look after the rural areas that were heavily dependent on extractive industries. Yet this time around, um, apparently they'd done a lot of groundwork to actually go up and talk to rural communities and talk about transition right. and to have plans in place that helped communities transition to cleaner technologies. Um, if you think about Newcastle, for example, you know, incredibly coal dependent, um, yet is about to develop a thriving hydrogen economy and increasingly a visitor economy as well. So it can be done. It just yeah. takes will and policy and sometimes money. Yeah. Okay. So money is an interesting thing because you, your mum said you wouldn't get a job and you'd be tied to a tree, I think it was, you said. So you obviously had to find something to do with that environmental science degree. So where, where did we go from there? Uh, so I had I, I had decided to study environmental science by hook or by crook. Um, and my um, I was only two weeks into university and I picked up a traineeship. So I actually started working when I was 17 um, and had a traineeship at an energy company, an electricity distributor, and did my, did my uni degree part-time, worked full-time, and I have worked every day ever since. So I've never been without employment, touch wood. Um, so clearly the environment industry was something that was burgeoning and growing. And, I, you know, I, I say I did it before it got cool. Um, sustainability and ESG is something that everybody talks about these days. But when I was starting out, it, it really wasn't a, a career path. You know, my parents wouldn't even see a career path in that sort of thing. Yet, if you have a think about where a lot of people are going these days, it's it's into areas where environmental protection, social policy, social impact, governance, all of those issues are at, at, the, at the core of organisational strategy these days. So that first, I mean, it's even almost ironic, it was an energy company that hired an environmental science student. So what, what was that first role and... Look, I mean, the first sort of foray of most environmental management was doing less bad. So um, I would say environmental management systems and plans and, you know, if you were going to cut down a tree, which was the right tree to cut down, if you're going to replant one, which is the right one to plant, um, how did you, you know, not pollute the environment with, you know, soil control and all of those sorts of things. So uh, we also did a lot of contaminated land work, um, bearing in mind it was an electricity distribution company. It had old oil and all sorts of contaminants across sites. So uh, you certainly were at the pointy end of environmental science and things like groundwater monitoring and all of that sort of stuff. So it was very technical back then. And then I eventually in the company started doing less bad and trying to do more good. So we got into things like carbon offset 
get some renewal energy um, and really started doing – I did the first sustainability report um, for an energy company in Australia way back when. So um, it was at this sort of burgeoning area of where people actually realised that companies were expected not just to do – not do bad things, yes. but to actually be part of the solution, um, which was an interesting sort of career journey in nine years that I worked there. Right. So that's that's going back a, a reasonable period. I mean, when we look at ESG, like in our world, in the investment world today, it's a, I suspect it's almost two thirds of every conversation uh, relates to that. And again, it comes back to the way the industry approaches it is avoid bad and it's starting to move towards maybe try and try and do good uh, but it also opens up a lot of what's called greenwashing where people kind of pretend they're doing stuff when they're when they're not so you've operated in, in the real world if you like rather than the investment world what's that ESG journey looked like uh, look I think it depends on the industry that you're yeah. in I mean I've done energy water waste um, and then pretty much for the last decade and a bit, I've yeah. been in property, yeah. um, which has an incredibly large impact on the environment, yeah. um, but it's quite diffuse. It's it's far, far away. You don't think when you switch a light on yeah. or, you know, you you build a building out of concrete, the, the actual environmental impacts are very far downstream, yes. but they are massive when you actually add them all up. So yeah. having worked in the property industry, I would say, you know, I, I started doing the first lots of green buildings yeah. and then we started doing carbon neutral precincts like the one that we're in today at Barangaroo yeah. um, and then it's also about trying to solve social issues yeah. so how do you you know how do you build buildings that are more affordable that help solve people's obesity issues and all sorts of other things that you wouldn't necessarily think of in a property company but yeah. at the end of the day if you work for a really good company they always should be starting not doing less harm but yes. how do we actually solve the world's problems through what we do yeah i'd never thought of a, of a building solving an obesity problem is that just making a incredibly long staircases or something <laughs> <laughs> well it is sometimes it's as simple as um walking up and down the stairs active transport um so you know providing cycling facilities and end a trip whether that's you know encouraging people to do a walk at lunchtime yeah. um it could be even just providing healthy food options in areas so um it's all about trying to work out well what is the issue of you know the day and and how do you help solve that that's interesting i yeah never thought of that so today you're working with placemaking new south wales um i didn't even know what that word meant when i uh, when I, when i was told so maybe maybe you want to talk a little bit about about what you're doing today yeah, I think a bit like sustainability, it's an overused word um, that means different things to different people. And the way that I, I like to say it is, you know a good place when you find it. Yeah. And those, what placemaking means to me is that it respects that it's a multidisciplinary approach that requires everybody from architects and engineers all the way through to good security and lighting and cleaning and activation and events. So um, if you think about the areas that we run, so we're responsible for most of the Sydney Harbour foreshore, so the Rock, Starling Harbour, Barangaroo, um, all the way around to uh, White Bay um, where we'll be the development agency looking after the redevelopment of the power station and surrounds. Yeah. If you think about it, it requires hundreds 
hundreds of people's effort to actually make those things thrive, um, both in the development phase but also in precinct operations and management. So um, we've got everybody from architects and engineers through to a heritage bridge person through to an archaeologist. So we've got everybody on staff and everybody plays an important role in making sure that these places really thrive. And, and this is very different from a, simply a commercial operation like a shopping centre, what have you. I mean, there's heritage, there's there's tourism, there's, there's so many different elements. There's so about. many moving parts in our precincts and they are so high profile. Yeah. I mean, if you think about a property portfolio yeah. uh, anywhere globally, I, I think I've, I've got one of the best ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so everything from the forecourt of the Opera House all the way through to, you know, the beautiful Heritage Rocks mm. precinct, yeah. um, the newest precinct in Sydney being Barangaroo. We, we do the precinct operations and management here. Um, and then new developments around at White Bay. So, yes, incredibly complicated um, and uh, lots of different stakeholders, many of which, you know, I say to my team often we deal in land use conflict. That's yeah. part of our job. Um, you know, whatever whatever you do, you are never going to make everybody happy. And you pretty much have a fireworks display every night, I think. We do have fireworks down at uh, Darling Harbour. So um, we try not to do it every night, though. At the moment, we're, we're benefiting from the Vivid Festival, yep. which is bringing a lot of activation back into our CBDs. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful uh, part of the world. And I guess just thinking of the building we're in here in Barangaroo, that that ability to walk around at lunchtime and the, it's, it's a you know um, very attractive, very attractive uh, precinct that you have. So... Um, I guess what's what's the highlight for you? What is it that really, um, I guess, gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, look, I mean, some days I think I've got a very hard job and, you know, when you're at the top of the tree, often a CEO's day is dealing with all the things that your team haven't been able to solve themselves and have had to escalate to you and that's not always pretty. Yep. Um, and then other days I walk through our precincts um, as I did on Saturday night with, you know, kids and families and, you know, people enjoying the alfresco dining. It was actually a beautiful afternoon and the sun was shining and people were enjoying the precinct and what my team had put on in partnership with uh, Destination New South Wales to get Vivid up and running. Yeah. And you just think, wow, this is what it's about. This is this is great. This is this is what the teams thrive on. Yes. Is people coming in and enjoying themselves in our precincts. So it's more than a property company, it's an entertainment business. It's uh, it's just a whole lifestyle thing. It's everything. So, uh, you know, it's everything from cleaning and security and picking up cigarette butts all the way through to, you know, hosting major events and, yeah. and being a tourist destination, but also a, a location that Sydney siders enjoy as well. So if we go back to, to the start, this idea that your mum said that, you know, you'd be tying yourself to a tree, um, what would she... I guess reflect on if she, if she could see you see you now. Yeah, well, my mum passed away a few years ago um, after a long battle with cancer, and she. I know she was incredibly proud of what I'd I had achieved. Um, they gave up a very comfortable existence, my parents, um, from the country to come to the city, which away from family and friends on their own, um, to try to give my brother and I a decent chance at an education. Um, and we both took that opportunity. And I think my father was the one that turned around and said to my mother the day that I got my HSE results and said that I was doing environmental science, my mother thought that your HSE results were like a gift certificate. You had to yeah. use the entire thing, you know, yeah. um, and I wasn't choosing a course that used all the marks that I got and yeah. so she was horrified. Um, and my dad turned around and it was 
probably one of the most insightful things my father's ever said, which is, we did this to give our kids choice. And she's, ex- you know, she's exercising that choice now and we need to support her. So I think um, uh, what they didn't see was an industry that they didn't understand. Um, and I think I showed that, you know, having industries and having businesses solve problems, whether they be environment, social or governance issues, um, is something that I've proved there is a career in. Yeah. I think if you could you could bottle that up, that idea that an HSC or, or end of school exams is about choice, that's, it's a very powerful message because I think a lot of people get wrapped up in that in that score. Yeah, you get 99 or whatever your marks are and yeah. thou, thou shalt study law, right, yes. whether you actually want to be a lawyer or not. Um, and why is law the highest mark? I mean, I know that lawyers are incredibly intelligent too, as are doctors, but, yes. you know, there's also some very weird courses that very have very high marks due to demand. Um, and I think having an understanding, I, I quite like the American system where kids actually go to college and they learn how to learn for the first couple of years and then choose a major. Um, Whereas I think a lot of kids sort of get pigeonholed. You get a good mark. You go to to, uh, the the best university you can afford with your marks. You do the best course you can afford with your marks. You you toil away for four to six years and then you get to the end of that and go, actually, I don't want to be a lawyer or a banker or anything um, that I've just studied um, four years ago because I happen to do well in the HSC. And then there's kids that don't do so well in the HSC who would make excellent lawyers and excellent doctors. Um, And, you know, through various ways and means, and I've got friends who, you know, desperately wanted to be an architect, um, you know, went up to Newcastle, did the sort of precursors to architecture and then ended up matriculating back to an architecture degree in Sydney and is doing extremely well. So um, there are ways around it and I think having an understanding of, yeah, you what you actually want to do um, and what the world needs um, and what you're you're good at is the sort of nexus of trying to find a career. And you think you find that? Look, I, I'm in an, uh, I reckon I've got one of the best jobs in the world. Um, I get to look after some amazing sites. Um, I get to play in everything from, you know, as I said, archaeology all the way through to new development projects. Um, at the moment, we're just repairing the White Bay Power Station, right. which has got to be one of the coolest jobs in Sydney at the moment. Um, it's an amazing building and we're getting it ready for its next life and one of the jobs we'll have over the next 12 to 18 months is actually determining what the long-term use of that power station is you know his building that was built in 19 sort of 15 um, has been mothballed since 1983 and finally we're actually going to reuse it and return it back to the community that that is incredibly cool yeah and, and and using our money rather than uh, having to raise it from a, as a corporate or something so presumably it's a, it's it's some of the elements of corporate life are Remote, well, are less challenging? Is it uh, budgetary constraints still? Look, I mean, I, I, I don't have a problem working in the private sector. Yeah. That's where I spent, you know, the f- many, many years or yeah. decades um, working for, for corporates. I don't think one is bad and one is good. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people are fearful between industries and there's a lot of weird sort of that people who worked in the private sector must be all about money and people who work in the public sector must not care about money Um, and the issue couldn't be further from the truth. I've got pretty strict budgets and, um, you know, we have to, we as an authority are not given money by the government. We earn our own revenue through the precincts that we're given. Um, I mean, 
bear in mind it's a fantastic real estate portfolio as well. It's a good one to try to, you know, turn a profit and yes. then return that into great events and activations that, you know, add to the economy through tourism and, yes. and other revenue and also just supporting the arts. So, you know, we're hosting Biennale at the moment. We're hosting yeah. Vivid. We do um, everything from the Fringe Festival to the Sydney Festival yeah. to St. Patrick's Day, Anzac Day. They're, yeah. they're all the things that we host in our precincts yes. um, and most of them are free or very low cost. Yeah. So um, we, we, we try to return these places for the people of New South Wales um, and that that's incredibly motivating to me and my team. But, yeah, I don't think um, having jumped industries um, between I started off in public, went to yeah. private and now I'm back in public, um, I think people who are fearful of making that leap yeah. just need to move out of their comfort zone. Well, moving out, moving out of your comfort zone is maybe, maybe a place to sort of move. I mean, it must have been difficult losing your mum at a young age. What was the impact on you? What was, um, yeah, how did you respond? Look, uh, my parents were very typical middle-class people yeah. who saved up for their retirement and yeah. were, you know, they built their dream home down back down in Eden where, yeah. where my family are from yeah. um, and were, you know, my mother would always say, well, you won't see us for dust, yeah. basically. We, we They bought the big caravan, they bought the car to tow the caravan and then she fell ill. So um, they, I think, were in the house that they'd built at Christmas time, and by April, um, she was she was having cancer surgery, and it was pretty dire. Mm. Um, she battled for another six years, and at various points, we were given six months, and she lasted six years. That was a pretty tough battle, um, and watching my parents go through that, and also watching my father lose his life partner. That I remember when the doctor came in after what was meant to be a pretty routine surgery and came in and many, many hours later said, I'm sorry, we just couldn't get it all. My dad's first response was, that's not the plan. Like they had a life plan and the life plan was to work hard, yeah. save for their retirement and then enjoy life. And I think the lesson that I've learned is that you can't, you can't postpone things, you can't delay things, you know, yeah. drink the good wine, go on the holiday. Yeah. Um Get out of your comfort zone because you've yep. only got one life. I mean, you know, I've I've managed to live and work overseas, yep. which was um, pretty brave to move to London just after Brexit. But yep. um, I had <laughs> the opportunity <laughs> as everybody was leaving. I was I was going, which was quite interesting. Vacancies, okay. <laughs> um, there was some vacancy. Um, but again, it, it was something that I, I I looked at myself and thought, okay, well, what's the worst that can happen? I yeah. turn around and I come home, and lend lease at the time were moving me over there, and there would be another job back in Sydney if I needed it. So, um, I always sort of approach things from you regret things that you don't try, yes. not the things that you do. And yeah. if you've got a bit of a safety net, then yeah. why not take the leap of faith? And I think pushing myself out of my comfort zone. I, I could have stayed at Integral Energy for forever yeah. um, and I still run into people who have worked there from <laughs> yeah. when I was a young pup and they're doing extremely well. Like they're all in management now. But I think I've kind of gone out on a limb and yeah. really tried to grab life by the throat and yeah. experience everything that I possibly could. I'm incredibly um, intellectually curious and I get bored easily. So I don't like doing things twice. If yeah. I've solved a problem, I want to move on to the next one. Yeah. And so I, I kind of have moved around. And I think my mother's lesson um, of you've only got one life, yeah. go out and live it. And, you know, failure is not that bad. I, you know, I, I have had career back steps, you know, yes. when we came back from London, uh, it was a career back step. I 
it was the first time I had moved backwards in my career as opposed to forwards. Yeah. And I did that because my wife desperately wanted to come home to be closer to family. And it really wasn't a job back here. Then Lace moved me back, but there really wasn't much to do. I was virtually on the reserve bench for a while until I picked up something. And there was a project that was going and I picked that project up. And it was a mentor of mine um, who said, yep, you can always do a job in sustainability. There will always be sustainability roles. This is a risk role. Who else is going to give you an opportunity to lead a massive risk project yeah. when you're not a risk professional? And right. I thought, oh well, yeah, that's a see what pretty good point. <laughs> I'll give it a crack and see how it went. And it was in, you know, it was it was a successful project. Yeah. And I don't think I would have gotten the chief executive role that I'm in now yeah. unless I'd proven that I could do things beyond my technical capabilities yeah. of being somebody who was focused on ESG previously. How important is it to have a mentor in in your career? Look, I think a lot of people have a misnomer about mentors. I think mentor is a is, is a loaded term. I would say it's really important to have sponsors um, as opposed to mentors. And I think, you know, I've participated um, in a number of mentoring programs that are formal and I think they're great, um, slightly different to what I think you need, which is to have sponsors. And they're much more informal. They're, like if I, if I said to my old boss, Andrew, you're my mentor, I'm sure he'd just look at me and go, I'm your boss or I'm yeah, your yeah, mate. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. it, it feels weird um, to sort of say I'm your mentor. And I remember yeah. reading Sheryl Sandberg's uh, book, Lean In, and, you know, so many people said, would you mentor her? And she yeah. said it was a bit like people saying, will you be my mum? Like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a weird thing, but I think mentors are people that you look up to and who foster you in very informal ways. Um, and I've benefited over my career with people who have always been there and been sound advice yeah. and have really pushed me out of my comfort zone um, and made me push myself forward. I wonder, you know, for, for sort of younger people listening, do you, do you have to ask someone to, I mean, you talk about being informal, but do you still have to sort of ask for permission for help or is there a way to, I just guess, learn from, from that experience or, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of the nature of these relationships that have worked for you over time. What what would be your sort of the 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 best ones are the ones where you never use the word mentor. Yeah, you just happen to look up to someone and you yes. learn from working with them every day, and you know that they've got your back. Yeah. Um, and then there's the more formal ones, yeah. like formal mentoring programs, yeah. where you know I, I put my hand up and I've never met the person before, but yes. now I'm your mentor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Shit, it's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And look, you know, I try to make it as useful as possible to those individuals, but I don't yeah. think it's anywhere near the benefit of a yes. proper mentor or sponsor who is, you know, somebody more senior than you who yes. puts you virtually under your wing yes. but also um, isn't afraid to kick you out of the nest as, yeah, yeah. as my mentors yeah. have. Right. Hard, what's it called? Tough tough love. A bit of tough love is always yeah. good. So along along that journey, you touched on, on, on going to the UK after Brexit and I guess choosing to come home. But while you were there, what did you – what did you benefit from that? What was the skills you picked up or the experiences that you've used since? Look, I'd, I'd done some work overseas previously in a fly-in and fly-out role to Asia. And because the language is is quite different, especially in, you know, you're working in Shanghai or you're working in, um, you know, Tokyo, um, you're very mindful of the cultural difference. And one of the things that really shocked me about going to the UK was we are so familiar with UK culture Yes. You know, we grew up, I grew up on the goodies and, you know, all of the great TV shows from Britain. Yeah, like um, I grew up on Neighbours, so yeah. there we go. <laughs> Maybe it was a cultural exchange. <laughs> I think I got the better better cultural exchange.
learned that. Well, I'm still um, here, so I, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I think British TV is a lot better than Australian <laughs> TV. Um, so I, um, the thing that it really kind of shocked me was that I thought I knew British culture until I actually got there. And then you realise that wherever you go, the culture is different. And sometimes that's quite invisible. And it it takes you a while to realise. And that's the same of moving companies. It's the same as moving industries. And you realise that you have to change yourself and you have to be mindful of your impact on others and how impactful you can be and not to just sort of expect other people around you to know. And I think um, in Asia I was always incredibly mindful of the cultural differences and moving to Britain um, I was very mindful um, in the first couple of months that, you know, things that, I was doing didn't land well with the team. So, you know, an example might be in Australia, a really good meeting is that you make a decision, you communicate that decision and you move on, right? That's a great meeting. Excellent, right? That's not how it's done. Um, It's much more consultative and you don't necessarily make a decision in the meeting. Um, You allow people to go away and mull it over and come back. Have a cup of tea. Have a cup of tea. Um, (laughs) you, You certainly allow people a little bit more time to think things through and you realise that British culture isn't quite as, they find us quite abrupt and quite forward Mm. Um, and uh, it's interesting. They like the fact that we get stuff done but they find us a bit bulldozer-ish and that sort of cultural sort of crunch was in my first couple of months and I realised that I had to adapt and I think that adaptability is something that I carry forward is sitting back and going, okay, how am I landing? Not just assuming that everything's okay. Yeah, I find it interesting moving here, but I was quite a lot younger, but I remember thinking people actually work harder here than they do in Britain. I had always come in the principle that people had more fun and it was laid back, what we'd seen on the TV, but it also seemed people, and maybe it is that idea of getting things done, but it seemed that it was, everything was a little bit more intense. And then the UK actually is a bit more somehow relaxed, which I thought was quite an irony. I would agree with that. I, I, I think Australians work incredibly hard um, and globally we are known um, for, you know, being the person who doesn't put up with the status quo for standing up for things and I think um, even in an Australian company overseas, yeah. the culture has to adapt to the local environs. Yes. I, I remember my first day or, or I think it was my first week, my team sort of got up and went, okay, we're going out now, the sun is shining and I'm like, why are you leaving your desk? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, and then I realised the sun doesn't shine very often. It so <laughs> on days where here. the sun is shining, <laughs> yes. um, people did actually get up and leave and yeah. go and sit in a park somewhere. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I loved my time in Britain. Yeah. I, I really loved it. And we, we enjoyed lots of travels and, um, you know, got to work on some amazing projects. We used to get sent outside if it was sunny. That was it. You had to be outside because yeah, it was so rare. And then people take their tops off at fifteen degrees, which makes which makes no sense. Uh, no sense here. So so you've got to some extent that 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 nexus you described of what you're good at, what you're passionate about, what the world needs. You've talked about the sort of idea that you you don't sit still, or you you're curious. You always like to be doing new things. How do you think about the future today? 
Look, I, I really love what I'm doing right now. Um, my wife and I have a 10-year plan. She doesn't want to work beyond 60. She's a school teacher. Um, and there's lots of research that says people who retire at 60 live a long life. People who retire at 65 as teachers don't live very long at all, okay. um, which is an interesting one. I think the, the, the theory being those last, last five years really take it all out of you. So right. we've got a 10-year plan, um, and which I want to continue to do sort of the high-end um, you know, CEO level roles and then, you know, a portfolio career that's a little bit more relaxed and learning lessons from my mum, you know, they they never got to enjoy a retirement um, and hopefully I get the benefit of enjoying a retirement. Nothing's ever guaranteed. So I enjoy my life now but also um, don't want to work this hard for forever. Sounds like a, a good place to stop and take a rest. So, look, Anita, thanks you so much for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Douglas. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.